Today's church needs to be reminded of its true foundation, one created by God and not man-made. See, the believer's life is that of faith based on what God has revealed in His Word. Today, the church is moving away from the Word of God to experience, to subjectivism, to technology, and it's moving away from the Word. But without faith, it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. The Christian life is not meant to be impossible, but it does in fact require that one not only listen, but react to God's Word. Today, as Pastor Xavier continues his study series in the Gospel of Luke, he points out four essential simple truths to living as a follower of Jesus Christ. And these are not suggestions, but essentials for life on earth. Join us in Luke chapter 17 for today's important thought-provoking lesson. Luke chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. And the message is entitled, Essential Truths for Disciples. The word disciple simply means a learner, a pupil. It appears 268 times, all found in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts. Jesus now teaches disciples four lessons for effective service to Him in preaching the Gospel. Here in chapter 17, 1 through 10. First, the warning against offenses, verse 1 and 2. Then He said to the disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. Jesus is speaking in the context of what has preceded, the gospel being preached. Notice Jesus said to his disciples, there would always be people attempting to turn seekers and young believers from Christ. Notice the end of verse 1 and 2, the certainty of judgment for the offenses. The person attempting to derail one from the gospel or to tempt a young believer to get involved in sin will be under divine retribution. Listen to the words. But woe to him through whom they do come. Now they're going to come. No one can stop that. But woe to that man. The person is noted by God. And the person will be held responsible by God. Listen to his words. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck. And he were drowned into the sea. This is Jesus speaking. This type of death being preferable to severe judgment of God for the crime of tempting and corrupting a believer to sin. Here's a comparison. Then that he should offend one of these little ones. The little ones are those seeking the kingdom of God and young believers. It's not literally talking about just children, but those who are coming to God in childlike faith. To cause the believer to turn away from Jesus and to go back into the world. This is their goal. And people work hard at it. This is one of the most severest proclamations of judgment in the New Testament. The warning against offenses is from turning believers away from the gospel. Second lesson he teaches them as they're ministering the gospel is the command to forgive, verse 3 and 4. The responsibility to confront is on the innocent Christian, the innocent party, beginning of three. Usually we say, well, you know, I didn't do nothing. Let him come to me. No, no, no. If somebody did something to you and you're aware of it, you're the innocent party, you're responsible to go. That's what the scriptures teach. 
those in the body of the church still have a sin nature and we can still sin and offend each other. Sometimes we do it unknowingly, sometimes we do it knowingly. But we're not to just shine it on, we're to confront one another. Now there's a way to confront, we'll deal with that. But we're not to just say, well, you know, it really doesn't matter. It does matter. There's to be a mutual accountability in the church. Notice the condition is a real situation, not hypothetical. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. The word rebuke simply means to censure or to charge someone with their failure. And if we repent, forgive him. Repentance means they acknowledge your charge. They confess their sin and ask forgiveness and abandon their sin. Notice the one who confronted has a duty of pardoning their sinning brother or sister. Forgive him. Now notice in verse 4, the capability to reconcile repeatedly is brought forth next. And it's still for every Christian. Now, if, 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 if one offense is not bad enough, now we're going to get repeated offenses. Now remember, Christian disciple, picking up your cross daily, denying yourself. None of this can be done on our own ability. Okay? The condition is one of reality, notice. And if this, he sins against you seven times in a day, oh my Lord, are you kidding me? Not hypocritical or hypothetical. Due to our sin nature in the world we live in. Sometimes people are so caught up in themselves, they, they don't realize how sinful they are and how, how they just step over everybody and they, because they're, they're just, it's all about them. I, I venture to say you and I sin more than seven times before we get out the door in the morning. The rabbis used to say, if you forgive three times, you're a perfect man. <laughs> well, Jesus is not so gracious there. Huh? Uh, he's the ultimate authority and uh, he comes to seven here. But in um, Matthew 18, 22, he says seven times 70, 490 times. Not meaning that if you get the 491, you're done. No. Hopefully you get the idea. The condition of his repentance is also a genuine reality. He says, and seven times in a day return to you saying, I repent. The procedure would still be the same if he did not come to you. As stated here, if he offended you a second time, you'd go to him. Third time, you'd go to him. But here he comes to you, so there's no problem. The innocent person would confront the sinning brother in hope of seeing repentance and reconciliation. That's the whole goal. The whole goal is not to, you know, tear you through or to make you feel bad. It's to confront you to get it right. You shall forgive him. This is not a suggestion or an option again. This is a command. Our duty, as in verse 3. The manner in which we are to confront one another is critical in humility. Listen, brethren, if a man is overtaken and trespassed, you who are spiritual, restore such a one the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Galatians 6, 1. So there's a difference between you getting somebody's face, say, hey, you rat, I heard you say this to me. You know, or you say, you know what, I, 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 somebody told me this, and there's no way for me to know whether it's true or not, except... By you, because they said you said it. So, could you verify one with the other? That's a different approach. So, in gentleness and humility. But also in privacy, one by one. By twos, by threes, by the church, Ephesians, or um, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 declares. Again, you initiate the innocent party and you go by your brother. And if he acknowledges it, then it's done. Nobody knows about it except you and him. 
If he doesn't hear you, you go with another brother. You go by three, and would you be in the fourth one, whatever, and then you're minimized, and then the church. So you're always minimizing, so it's easy to find out who has the big mouth. Once things are taken care of, they're not mentioned, they're not spread. Simple. Matthew 18 keeps the house clean and honorable and honest and brings glory to God. Sometimes Christians don't repent. Then what do I do? Will I still forgive them? So that that does not cause me to sin. I release you. But my forgiveness, my releasing you on what you did to me without you acknowledging and asking forgiveness does not mean that I believe that we're reconciled. We're not reconciled. Reconciliation means when one member acknowledges sin when he's confronted and he repents from the sin and forgiveness is given, then there's reconciliation. Is that clear? Okay? So if someone doesn't acknowledge their sin and says, no, you're wrong, well, then I, I release you and I lift my heart to God so I don't become hard or bitter and I wait to the day that perhaps we can be reconciled. But there cannot be full reconciliation unless there's an acknowledgement of the sin, a repentance from the sin, and an imparting of forgiveness. Okay? Very clear. If you don't acknowledge your sin before God, you're out of fellowship. He doesn't hear you. He requires the same thing. In fact, Matthew 18, 17 says, But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. So in other words, there's excommunication at times when someone doesn't acknowledge it. depends on the severity of what it is. Second Corinthians 5.5, 5, we have the young man sleeping with his stepmother. Later on, he repented, he acknowledged it. He was brought back into the church. Simple, reconciled. Now, there is a warning in Hebrews 12.14-17. It says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. There's a key. There's, there's, there's the source that we draw from, the grace of God. Okay, we don't do this because we're so good. We don't do this because we're so smart. We do this because we're drawn from the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of bread sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. There comes a place where people just grieve, 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 where they no longer can can repent. There's no longer any opportunity. It's done. The matter of forgiveness is the heart of the gospel message, ladies and gentlemen. Christ has forgiven us all our sins and continues to do so. And I've told you often, no one will ever sin against you as much as you sin against God. So we are debtors. We just don't like it. No, no one's jumping and lying to forgive. Oh, can I do it again? Can I get in line again? Nobody's doing that. Our flesh detests it. We want vengeance. We're to be as Christ, bringing us to the end of ourselves, not trusting in our own abilities, but Christ alone. As the response of the disciples will be in the next verse, verse 5. They realize they can't do it. Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved... Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you might think about doing. No, so you must do. But I have no choice. 
I either try to do it on my own and suffer the consequences and the misery or I go to Christ and draw from Him. Bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. Having the full armor on, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. The command to forgive believers is the heart of the gospel. Notice thirdly, verse 5 and 6. The need to live out our faith. The petition was due to the recognition of their human inability for continuous forgiveness of a Christian. Verse 5 here. The particular ones petitioning Jesus are the twelve they're called apostles now. So they asked Jesus, increase our faith. The instruction of Jesus was that they did not need more faith, but just to use what they had been given to be enabled. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, the mustard seed, as you know, especially in those days, was known as small as a seed. And it illustrates the power of faith. It had nothing to do with the amount or the size of faith. They were thinking more. Jesus says, no, mustard seed. This was to encourage them in what had already been given to them. What had been given to them was sufficient for what God would ask them to do. They needed to live out their faith. Listen. You can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea. And it would obey you. This again is not teaching that the apostles at will could do such a thing if they chose to. The mulberry tree, about 30 feet average, with deep roots, it would be a human impossibility and that's the point. This can only be done supernaturally. This is teaching that if Jesus directed them to do so and they depended on him, he would do it. When Jesus does whatever it is through us, the tendency is we think it's because of us. But it's God acting as we trust him to do what he said he was going to do or wanted us to be part of doing. Yet faith was able to plant it in the CSS if God directed them. And they did not doubt or act in unbelief. Matthew uses a mountain instead of the mulberry tree in Matthew 17, 20 through 21. And the key is that faith is supernatural, dependent and obedient to the Lord Jesus, who will enable us. You see, they were not to trust themselves or to think that everything can be solved and remedied with more faith. <laughs> but rather in making use of the little faith that they did have. The key was not in the quantity of faith, but rather in the quality of faith. Too often we are uh, trusting ourselves to do what Jesus commands us to do. We depend on our experience in life alone rather than the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We depend on our education rather than the Word of God, His guidance and His wisdom. We trust in our success of the past instead of seeking Jesus for the new way and the new manners in which he wants to work in us and through us. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me in Philippians 4.13. At other times, we're trying to figure things out. So we ask people their opinion, their advice. We ask counsel for here, counsel for there. We're racking our brain. We're full of anxiety. 
rather than just praying and waiting upon the Lord for him to speak to us very, very clearly. You see, we'll do anything and everything in the last thing say, okay, well, let's pray. When it should be the first thing. You see, we would rather know what a person thinks we should do than God. The church is full of counseling. The majority of churches, their calendars are filled up all, all month long. Psalms 27, 14 says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Paul said, Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 6-7 Well, when I don't do that, then I'm anxious. When I don't do that, I'm asking your opinion. I'm doing this, I'm doing that, everything else. We might put on the mind of Christ. See, the believer's life is that of faith based on what God has revealed in His Word. Nothing else. Today the church is moving away from the Word of God. To experience. To subjectivism. To marketing. To technology. And it's moving away from the Word. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 says, but without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 So the need to live out the faith as believers is a test of the gospel. Notice fourth and last comes the parable. It's the light. It's the illustration. The danger of pride in serving. The parable of the improbable servant is a comparison Reminding the apostles and believers they owe all to Jesus. In verse 7, Jesus begins the parable with a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer in the negative as we've seen before in parables. He addresses each individual. And which of you, he confronts them. He puts each person in the position of master. Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep? The word servant is doulos, servant by choice. It comes from the Old Testament. After the sixth year, you would release the seventh. If you wanted to serve your master for life, then he would take you to the door of his house, put your ear by the uh, by the post, and put a hole in your ear, put an earring, and you were a bond servant. This is used for Jesus, used for Paul. It's supposed to be used for you and I. He painted a scenario, notice, which would be unthinkable and absurd. Which of you will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? No. Each of them are to say, not me. That's the proper answer, the only answer. And then Jesus made a second rhetorical question with another two obvious answers, now in the positive, in verse 8. He portrayed the rightful, superior position of the master, but will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper? And gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk? Yes. This is the right and honorable thing to do as a servant. And then he portrayed the rightful position of submission of the servant. And afterwards, you will eat and drink? Yes. This is the right and respectful thing to do. Now, if you're politically correct and into the social justice... This is the world of Rome, 600,000 slaves. Jesus is using the cultural illustration of reality. He's not approving slaves, okay? So, just a footnote. 
Verse 9, Jesus declared a third rhetorical question again with the obvious answer now in the negative. He portrays the ridiculous possibility. Does he thank that servant because he did the thing that were commanded him? He proclaims the only answer. I thank not. So Jesus makes the application of the parable, the punchline, as we've seen many times. It's got a central message. They were bondservants of Jesus. So he says, so likewise you. Just like the servant. It's emphatic. They were to obey him completely when you have done all these things which you are commanded. They were not to think themselves as deserving special treatment by God. That they weren't the hottest things as ice cream. They were not to think that God was in their debt. They were to declare, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. The word unprofitable means useless, good for nothing. I like that. It matches exactly what the scriptures declare about man and his heart. The word appears only one other time in the New Testament for the servant who buried his talent rather than putting it in the bank for interest in Matthew 25.30. The idea is that there is no room for pride in, in an attitude of meriting anything. It has all been given to us by Jesus Christ, our Master. And He's the Master, and we are the servants. And it is right that we do what He's commanded. And after we end up doing what He told us to do, we're to say, I am an unprofitable servant. Now the parable of the unprofitable servant illustrates how to avoid the perils of the three preceding teachings in service of the gospel by obeying Jesus. The parable is a comparison. Remember, they compare a contrast. Being a humble servant, not being ensnared by the attempts of people to not follow Jesus or offending others. If you obey the Lord, you're going to escape this. Verse 1 and 2. Being a forgiving servant, you are faithful to forgive Christians repeatedly when needed and as necessary. Verse 3 and 4. Being a dependent and obedient servant of Jesus, you obey in faith to see the impossible take place. Verse 5 and 6. John the Baptist says, He must increase and I must decrease in John 3.30. That's the principle of a Christian and a disciple. The danger of pride in serving for believers is forgetting the grace of the gospel. And so Jesus has taught His disciples these four lessons for effective service to Him in the preaching of the gospel. We've got to be doers in these things. These are tough things. These are impossible things on our own. The warning against offenses is from turning believers away from the gospel, a very severe crime. The command to forgive believers is the heart of the gospel. You can't get away from it. The need to live out our faith as believers is the test of the gospel. I take it every day, the test. The danger of pride in serving for believers is forgetting the grace of the gospel. I've got to remember. 
Pastor Xavier Rees has been delivering four important truths drawn from today's study in the Gospel of Luke. Four simple truths we need to remember and put into practice daily. And today's message, titled The Essential Truths for Disciples, is available, as always, on CD for only $4. And by the way, we'll also be including everything Pastor Xavier shared with us the last time we were together as well. Now, once again, the title to ask for is The Essential Truths for Disciples. Or you can simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address, once again, is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. The future may be uncertain for us, but not for God. Join us for more Simple Truths from the Gospel of Luke right here next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com